Hi, Reese here. Just to let you know, there were some problems with the audio for this episode, and I've done what I can to make it a little bit more bearable and tidy it up a bit. All will be back to normal in time for the next show. Reese and Reynolds are having a whiskey while trying to work out who killed the mystery guest. This is Clue. Reese, now that Van Diesel is dead, am I right in thinking there is nobody else in this podcast? No. Then there is someone else in this podcast. No, no, sorry. I, I said no, meaning yes. There is still some confusion over whether there is anyone else in this podcast. I told you there isn't. There isn't any confusion or there isn't anyone else. Either or both. Just give me a clear answer. Certainly. What was the question? Is there anyone else in this podcast? No. Why do you keep asking? Because you're listening to Bigger Pictures with Chris Reynolds and Reese Davis Santi Banyard. You are indubitably listening to Bigger Pictures, possibly the nichest podcast on the internet. Today we're going to be investigating how the movies Dungeons & Dragons and Clue overlap. Bear in mind that we'll be discussing the plot to these films, so roll high on your dice to outrun the spoilers. Chris, the goal is set, the quest begins. It's adventure time. Do you know what? I, I, couldn't, I couldn't work out how you were going to get it in. <laughs> Listeners may remember this was a topic suggested by our beloved listener, Peter Holdsworth said, why didn't you do a, an episode based on board games? And we immediately cancelled the entire series because it was so complicated <laughs> to do. We've basically finally got round to doing this and so we've decided to compare the excellent Clue, which I think is going to have a bit of an argument over, and Dungeons and Dragons. Do you play many tabletop games, Chris? I have, but I've never played D&D because basically no one's ever asked me. Oh, really? Oh. All by myself. <laughs> do, 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 After do, this do. is all over, uh, we'll meet up. I've got a few RPGs. Ooh. D&D among them. I used to be quite the DM back in my day. Ooh, well, I, I've, I've played Betrayal at the House on the Hill. Now, is that role-playing? I don't know. No, not quite. What's the last game you bought, just out of curiosity? Uh, my brother bought me two games. One was called Takedo, which is about uh, you're in Japan and you're travelling across... Oh, yes. Yeah. Do you know of this game? Because I thought it was quite niche. I, I'm really into niche games. <laughs> Uh, so, yeah, Takedo is really cool. You spend most of it eating food. Yeah, <laughs> it's great, isn't it? In my head, it's like a mega stag do, and you're basically just having <laughs> as much fun as you can, like eating loads of food yeah. and buying a load of nonsense and basically hanging out in spas. <laughs> the other game Matthew bought me was Scythe, which oh, is about uh, you built mechanoid things. Do you know it? Oh, yeah, Diesel Punk Europe. It's the most overcomplicated thing I've ever played. <laughs> I still don't understand why. The, the instructions for Scythe say basically just blag it and hope for the best the first few times you play it yeah. because you've got no hope of knowing what you're doing. It's, it's one of these games where you have to like you have to optimise your actions over time. There are some turns where you could take two actions instead of just the one if you meet the right conditions. And so the whole game is about trying to plan two or three turns ahead so that you can have the optimal turn every time. I think it's really cool. I love it. I can't get enough people to play it. It's basically chess with mechanoids, but also not in any way whatsoever. <laughs> it's like three games of chess with mechanoids all at the same time. It's very complicated. The last game I bought, is um, it was on Kickstarter. It's called Seventh Citadel. Mm. And it's like a choose-your-own-adventure game, but on a, on a tabletop. Ooh. So you're on like, a, there's the board, like you slowly build on it, depending on which direction you go and what events happen. It's really cool. So we basically got these two films today of Clue and Dungeons and Dragons. But do you know what? I was really disappointed to find out that there is no film of Monopoly. What? Yeah, I know. I mean, what kind of world is this, really? Um, you know, it's it's, and, and I think it's because of the capitalist message. I think it's all those liberals stopping this film being made. The woke agenda. This is a woke agenda once again, stopping this this really important needed film. 
<laughs> uh, we need Have to. Have you considered working for the Daily Mail? Chris? Uh, yeah. So basically, <laughs> um, I I challenge you this week to how you would make Monopoly as a film. Do you want to listen to what I came up with? Yeah, I'd love to hear your version of this. I slightly came up with this while half asleep, so it's quite twisted. <laughs> <laughs> always a good way to start because i just watched starship troopers it is a very good film it's about these people who go off to go and fight these bugs and you supporting them the whole way through the film despite the fact they're clearly living in a sort of authoritarian quite right-wing almost nazi-like society which you would never ever support Mm. unless you're fighting bugs and that's what the director i think said about it paul verhoeven right yes Yeah. yeah escaping new york and that's it so my, my idea was essentially you do the same with capitalism so basically <laughs> you're looking at the the sort of capitalist world okay. but you have to see it in some sort of positive light but of course at the same time <laughs> it's actually quite evil and stopping people from being able to live places sorry just uh, for clarity's sake so you're in the monopoly world the world is run like a game of monopoly yes okay okay and then i went further <laughs> And thought, what is the ultimate, you know, power struggle between the masses uh, and the establishment? Which, of course, would be Les Miserables. So, essentially, it's a musical about Mr. Monopoly versus the socialists. And so you'd have bits like, you know, for example, his number, for Jean Valjean's number is 24601. So you'd have songs like 24601 pounds uh, for when you buy a property. Oh, oh, sorry. So you're you're telling me that the main character, yeah, their backstory is that years ago, oh, they sorry. landed on go to jail. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, sorry. That's the key <laughs> bit I forgot to mention. It starts in jail. I was trying to think of the cast for this, and I thought, well, we could go down the the traditional Hugh Jackman, Russell Crowe sort of route, playing Jean Valjean and uh, Javert. But that would be too easy. Yeah. So yeah. I thought, what about if we did it with the Muppets? <laughs> so hang on, hang on. So. It's a Muppets version of a Les star musical based on Monopoly. Mr. Monopoly, of course, being played by Gonzo the Great. <laughs> I love it. That's I love how it. I would make this film. He'd basically be trying to buy all these places and it would end up in like some big court case where like the people trying to have access to housing and stuff like that would try and take him to court and then he'd at the final last bit of the movie buy the final property and put you know Kermit the Frog and Miss Piggy in there or something like that. <laughs> That's how I would do it. How would you make this film? Monopoly to me doesn't bring up like the first word I associate with it isn't capitalism. It's normally um competitiveness. Like any time I'm at someone's place and mm. Or when I used to be. Yes. Anytime somebody mentioned Monopoly, there always seems to be two people in the room who try to like out compete each other, mm-hmm. right? And these are the same people who insist on playing with like a hundred house rules. <laughs> you know, things like any kind of fines that are paid to put under free parking or IOUs between players, which make the game last forever. It lasts forever every time and it makes no sense. Oh, right. I think if you were going to make a film about Monopoly, that kind of competitiveness, that, that would have to be the backbone of the film. And so you basically have like two characters that are really competitive and then like a few others around them who aren't so competitive or like mm. they, they want to have a good time playing yeah so for me like the inspiration for this movie would kind of be like a 90s family action film like jumanji like jingle all the way oh yeah jumanji spy kids hocus pocus uh, all those ones i'm 50 50 on them okay but you know what kind of feel that i'm talking yeah, about yeah, yeah, right? yeah, they've okay. got that definite flavor to them yeah and i think that because board games don't really have a story to adapt them you need to start by distilling the mood they create and figure out the story from that point which is why i was bringing up the stuff about 
competitiveness. Mm -hmm. It's set in the States. We start with, I'm imagining Pete Davidson, Mm -hmm. that kind of character. He's this uh, American comedian. You should look him up. He's hilarious. Yeah. So he's he's successful. Mm -hmm. He's a bit like an edgy nerd. Yeah. Really dark sense of humor. And he's got, in the film, this guy's got loads of money. So it's kind of, he's just splashing out on weird little esoteric gifts. That's like his thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, something he picked up from his parents, who are like an art dealer and an occult novelist. Mm-hmm. But he's not really the competitive type. Who is the competitive type is his girlfriend. And she would be like an Emma Watson. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Uh, who plays an entrepreneur. Yeah. Right? Like smart, funny, charming. Maybe not quite as charismatic as the Pete Davidson type, but like... She can slay any corporate function. And she's always got like this hyper-focused look in her eye. Yeah. Like she's always okay. like looking for an edge. Mm-hmm. You can picture it, yeah. Mm-hmm. And things are going really well for this couple. They want to take like the next step in each other's lives. So Pete is taking Emma to meet his parents, right? His two dads and then the sister he has. Dad number one is Idris Elba. Okay. If you remember him from Molly's Game, he was razor sharp. Yeah. yeah. And he, he was dominating. He controlled any room, mm-hmm. but he wasn't threatening. Yeah. And he had this presence to him. And, like, obviously, he's the other competitive character in this. Mm-hmm. Uh, dad number two would be, <laughs> funnily enough, Neil Patrick Harris. <laughs> yes, uh, okay. More relaxed, not, laid back. Not his yeah. Starship Troopers one. No. Uh, the one, his character from How About Your Mother. Yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, okay. Where he wasn't carefree, but he's not not carefree. Mm-hmm. yeah. Like, he kind of does his own thing. Mm-hmm. And then the last character would be the daughter, their daughter, like Pete's sister, who would be sweet, but with a really dark sense of humor that she's picked up from her brother. Mm-hmm. And I'm imagining Millie Bobby Brown. Yeah. Enola Holmes, Stranger Things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's the cast. Anyway, Pete Davidson is bringing Emma home for the holidays to meet the family, and he brings out a copy of the original Monopoly yeah. from 1935, <laughs> which he bought from, like, a Craigslist witch who says it's haunted. <laughs> and like charged him through the nose for it everyone goes ape for it like it's the perfect gift because that's the family they have like they all know each other really well yeah neil and millie love it because it's spooky and then emma and idris love it because it's monopoly and they are gunning for a reason just to kind of show off their competitive side Mm -hmm. and what ends up happening is a bit like if the big short was set in narnia (laughs) where if you go bankrupt you're trapped in the game and obviously, the less competitive ones, Neil Patrick Harris and Pete Davidson, they lose first. Yeah. And the rest of the family are so caught up in the drama that they fail to realise But once inside the game, they have to break it before it ends. Otherwise, they'll be trapped in there forever. The question I would ask is, which of them would you dress up as Monopoly Man? Well, I would have Monopoly Man be like a cameo played by Lord Alan Sugar. <laughs> <laughs> I had like a whole thing about the characters' names. So like Emma Watson's character would be called Lizzie Maggie. Because uh, she was the that was the name of the actual original inventor of Monopoly, mm-hmm. and um, Idris Elba's character was called Charles Darrow, who was the guy who kind of stole the idea from her and who ended up making millions off it. You, you've thought about this a lot. Oh, I have, and then the rest of the characters are all. It'll be a whole thing. Like it's got references to like history and acknowledging the cultural relevance of the game. It's about you know family and it's a loving film, but it's also about this competitive side. In the end, I imagine Millie Bobby Brown winning because like Emma and Idris have like. <laughs> They've basically broken the game for themselves by creating all these house rules. Mm. And Millie Bobby Brown exploits it. She buys up all their debt. And in the end, she wins, even though she only controls like the first two properties. <laughs> <laughs> on the subject of loving and caring for one another, should we talk about Clue? Go on, let's talk about Clue. Clue is the 1985 murder mystery farce written by John Landis and Jonathan Lynn and directed by Jonathan Lynn, based on the board game Cluedo, a.k.a. Clue, designed by Anthony and Elva Pratt. A group of strangers are invited to a murder mystery party, but soon after arriving, their host is murdered. 
Together, the guest plus the butler must deduce the identity of the murderer before the police arrive and... <laughs> yeah, that's it. I couldn't really figure out what was going to happen if the police arrive. Yeah. Uh, oh, they were meant to. They were meant to have to reveal why they were being blackmailed, but then someone died. I, I'm going to be honest. Let's just say this here and now: the plot of Clue is not one of its strongest points, <laughs> and that's probably most evident in the fact that it has three endings, all of which could, in theory, work, but none of them really work because none of them really make any sense. Yeah, as, as a film, it didn't really make sense. I <laughs> do you want to start because you like this film, don't you? Let's address the elephant in the room, Reese. You don't like this film, do you? You've taken one of Pete's favourite films and you've thrown it back in his face. Look, I don't want to insult Pete, so let me be very precise. (laughs) (laughs) Let me sharpen the knife before I stab this film in the back. If you're going to have a movie and a story in that movie, you need to have consistent characters. Mm. You need to have like a set of rules that the film follows and that I, as an audience member, can follow. In this film, there are three sets of rules. There's the rule of Pluto, which inspired the film, which the characters don't really follow particularly, which is fair enough. There's the rule of law, which the characters all have really uh, <laughs> iffy relationships with. Yeah. And then the rules of civil politeness, which kind of govern ordinary conversation and relationships. And they don't seem to really stick to these rules either. So at no point do I really have a clear idea of who these characters are, what they want from this situation, what they're getting out of it. <laughs> because the whole thing is set up as like relying on blackmail, but then it's not really set up until 20 minutes into the film, and then 20 minutes later it's not an issue anymore. I just didn't get it at that point. <laughs> I was completely lost. I, I must confess, I, when I got to the end and they had the three different alternative endings, the first two I sat there and was like, well, that's not possible, is it? That's nonsense. Oh, it ignores most of what was happening in the film anyway. Only really does the third ending make any sense. Just, just for listeners' benefit, basically this film was released with different endings in different cinemas, which I don't quite know how it worked because it could have only just been over an hour <laughs> if you look at the timings. It's only an hour and a half when you get to all three endings. Each cinema had a different ending to encourage people to go to a different cinema and watch it again. Of course they did because it wasn't that big a success <laughs> I, I mean yes i entirely agree the plot in this is, is nonsense you said that the characters aren't consistent why do you say that reese are you suggesting say like tim curry's character isn't consistent in this film in any way whatsoever <laughs> is that what you're implying i'm stating it openly <laughs> no no look even conair manages to keep its characters <laughs> you know you can follow them there's a sense of continuity emotional continuity to them and you just don't have that with Clue. No. And uh, I, I took I took offence to that. So I think you're wrong. And I'm going to tell you why you're wrong. <laughs> because I, I think you're judging the film unfairly. This is just a bit of fun. It doesn't really matter if you understand what's going on or not. I think where the joy is in this film is, first of all, in the writing of it, but also in terms of the actual performances. Some of the performances are amazing from actors that I I didn't know much about. (laughs) My highlight of the film is probably Colonel Mustard. I don't know if you've got a particular favourite. I I thought the only real character was the policeman who comes in towards the end. (laughs) He has a drive. He has a real reaction to things. (laughs) He's the only real character. The rest of them are these 2D cardboard cutouts with... 
Ig- flappy mouths. Ignoring the ca- ignoring the characters, what do you think of the performances? Or can you just not get past the fact that you don't think the characters are consistent enough to appreciate some of the subtleties of these performances? I did appreciate Wadsworth, uh, Tim <laughs> Curry's character. Uh, I liked the over-the-topness of it. The, the issue is, there's no way that he should have been in any way a butler or anything. He starts off as a butler, and it changes to something else, and it changes to something else. And frankly, they should have just said, and Tim Curry as himself, and it would have been much better. It would have worked if he was a detective in disguise as a butler at the start. Oh, yeah. In terms of the plot, there's a bit where they suddenly go, let's all go and have a look upstairs and see if there's anyone else in the house. And it doesn't make any sense. It's just to split them up and get them to do funny things and to find the secret passageways from the Mm -hmm. board game, which is what you you mentioned earlier on. No, I I think you're right. There are some funny lines. I mean, I I think that all the lines are really well... A lot of them are very well delivered. Mrs. White, at one point, they say... uh, They're talking about the fact that her husband is dead and she probably killed him. And she says, well, it's a matter of life after death. Now that he's dead, I have a life. And it's just, you know, I, I can't deliver that line, but she can, and it's really well done. But I don't think it worked in the film. This would be much better as play put on somewhere, like a, a one-hour play rather than a 90-minute film, because it just doesn't hold your attention for that long. It doesn't have the story for it. it it's a pantomime. Oh, no, it isn't. It, oh, yes, it is. <laughs> the um, Yeah, it's um, the slapstick, for example. Some of the slapstick is really very, very funny, like the bit where Tim Curry mm. looks says, I've got to break down the door, and he runs at the door to break it down and just bounces off it. <laughs> and I, I did enjoy it. I, I don't think this is anything highbrow at all. Things don't have to be highbrow to be good. I, I've said that, so, I feel like I've said that so many times. Maybe you're right. Maybe it's just trying to have a laugh. I just don't think that having a laugh is enough to sustain a movie. Christopher Lloyd is uh, every five minutes distracted by the fact that the French maid has a very low cut top and is uh, generously endowed. Yes. It's played for laughs again and again and again and again. And, you know, it's fair enough. It's an accurate joke. It doesn't get any less accurate with time. No. But it does get less fun. I must confess, I found, I mean, I did find that element had dated badly. I put on my whingy liberal hat with that bit and sort of went, <laughs> oh, this isn't funny. <laughs> but yeah, maybe I was being I a bit unfair. I would have at least have bought it if it was totally consistent. I mean, if it felt more like a carry-on film, where it was that kind of joke all the way through, mm. I could say, okay, it hasn't aged well, but at least I understand what it's doing. And I understand, you know, that that's the world it's created. But this, this doesn't even do that. I, I, it doesn't even do that. I, I think, Reese, are you suggesting that this is a bad film? You know what? This film isn't as bad as some others I've seen, actually. No. Uh, <laughs> it's not Suicide Squad, which was also poorly edited. So it's got that going for it. It isn't just a script. There were some bits in it that were generally really unexpected and very funny. The bit when the singing telephone call... What's she, what was she? Telegram. Telegram. The singing telegram turns up. That was that was bizarre, <laughs> but really, I thought very entertaining. But the best performance of the whole thing is the ad-lib done by Mrs. White when they reveal in one of the endings that she killed Yvette or something like that. And she's talking about how Yvette was having it off with her husband and she's like, I was just so annoyed and there were the flames, the flames on my head. <laughs> and it's just brilliant. I really enjoyed it. I admit it is not a well-made film, a well-put-together film. It's not even a well-written film. No! <laughs> so that's the thing. Like, So I heard that the director of this film, he heard from a studio what the, the basic pitch was. And he said that the only reason he took it was because he'd get to fly first class to uh, L.A. And he'd never flown first class before. So he took it. He goes out and he meets John Lance, mm. who is the, I think, writer-director of Blues Brothers? Yes, I, that's, that's where I knew the name from. Yes, Blues Brothers is great. Yeah, in my opinion. So he is like a comedy genius mm. for film. And I think that's why I went into this expecting something better. 
So John Landis, when he's telling the story to Lynn, he, he jumps up on the table and he's like, he's got so much energy. But then in the end, he's not actually able to participate and make it what he wants it to be. At least that's what I've heard. And maybe that's why this movie doesn't fully land, because it was John Landis's brainchild which he couldn't fully deliver himself. I disagree with you. I think it's really funny. I laughed through a lot of it. So if you want to watch a film where you're going to laugh and have a good time, fine. Don't Go watch, and watch this. this. If you want to watch something that's a, a good film, maybe give it a miss. Well, speaking of good films, uh, I've got a little <laughs> recommendation coming up next for you. Dungeons and Dragons, oh. the year 2000 fantasy adventure film written by Tupper Lillian and Carol Cartwright and directed by Courtney Solomon. Based on the first ever role-playing game, Dungeons and Dragons, designed by Dave Arnson and Gary Gygax. When mages threaten to overthrow their socialist empress, a team of misfit adventurers must find a scepter that controls dragons before it falls into the wrong hands. Before we go any further, I should admit something here. I wasn't quite sure which version of Dungeons and Dragons we were meant to watch. So we watched this one from 2000 because it had Jeremy Irons in. And I thought, ah, yes, that one. Who, who is Jeremy Irons? Was he popular? He plays Mufasa, not Mufasa, Scar in... The Lion King, and he's also the villain in what's the one with the tower? But it's not that one with Bruce Willis and Alan Rickman. And they did a th- they did a couple of not Lethal Weapon, what, Die Hard, Die Hard, Die Hard Three. He's the villain okay. in Die Hard Three. Oh, that explains it. Like I couldn't understand why he was in this. Yes, and maybe the casting director had to strike while Irons was hot. What? Why? <laughs> can Can I whinge about this briefly? Briefly, if you want to live to see another day, make it very brief. Okay, so I feel a bit bad for for this film because it had a lot of potential and a lot of desires and a lot of wishes about what they wanted to do with it and what they wanted to achieve. The things I'd probably say don't really work are the plot, the costumes, the CGI, the dialogue, the acting, uh, the fact the entire plot's actually stolen from Lord of the Rings, the directing, Jeremy Irons. I think the sets look okay. (laughs) And that's my summary of this. I really didn't like it. The thing is, I wanted to because they were tried so hard by the look of it. What happened was they'd been trying to make this for 10 years and Courtney Solomon basically kept proposing directors and the D&D people kept turning it down. So in the end, Courtney had to direct it themselves. And it shows. The CGI is is awful. Uh, really, really bad. <laughs> Even though, and I appreciate this was done about 2000, but don't put in loads of CGI dragons if you can't physically make a CGI dragon. It's not a good idea. The, the, I couldn't understand what the plot was. And at one point, they're walking around, and suddenly they run into Richard O'Brien, who was just hot off doing the Crystal Maze. And you think, oh, okay, this is going to be you know a new character. He's going to be something new or different. No, he just plays Richard O'Brien from the Crystal Maze. And lo and behold, the main character character then goes in to the crystal maze like it must be the same set from the crystal maze maybe a bit of a sort of you know harsher version tom baker turns up at one point and must have realized it was a terrible film because he's only got about three lines don't release the dragons and then he goes off somewhere and the other thing just to mention i've never seen costumes look so rubbish on some of the characters it just looks like they've bought it from woolworths like i mean it's really cheap and tacky looking and it's bizarre because you'll get you'll turn around and you'll see a really good set and think ah yes this is really good this is good or you might see a goblin or something and think yes look that costume looks all right and then you'll just go to something else and, and you'll think well that just looks tacky and cheap so i feel like part of the problem here is that time has passed since this movie was made not just in the fact that like you know cgi expectations have come a long way but in the fact that the business of hollywood has changed so much since this film came out it used to be the case that, that hollywood would make films that it would expect to sell well on dvd 
they would have like a cult following that would watch and rewatch it. <laughs> they weren't necessarily trying to make big bucks at the box office. Yeah. What's happened now is that companies like Disney put out fewer and fewer films every year, but they've got bigger and bigger budgets. And part of that trend was kicked off by the Lord of the Rings trilogy, mm. which came out after this film. Mm. To say that this film steals the story of Lord of the Rings is, is not Because Lord of the Rings stole the story from it, but it didn't. It's from a book. Well, no, the thing is that D&D stole so much of its history, it's like mythology from Lord of the Rings. Like, mm. that is just the history of D&D. I wouldn't say it was deliberately stolen, but I did watch it thinking, I really wish I were watching Lord of the Rings, uh, <laughs> because this is rubbish. That's what I sat watching it thinking. It is capturing a very different thing. Right at the top of the episode, I talked about how, uh, like with Monopoly, you'd have to distill the essence of the game, because there's not really a story in there. I think what they did with this film is distill the fact that if you're playing Dungeons & Dragons with friends, because none of us, well, very few people in the world, no professional writers and actors, the story is going to be hacky. The acting is going to be hammy. It's not going to be this polished narrative that you might expect from Lord of the Rings, for example. And that is reflected <laughs> extremely well in this film. Uh, Jeremy Irons' acting is by no means subtle, but it is it is explosive with energy. It is uh, a joy to watch. No, it's not. Sorry, Are you seriously arguing that this is a this is a rubbish film, but it's okay. It's rubbish because they didn't put any money or time or effort no, into it. But, uh, it's rubbish uh, no. because I, it's I'm rubbish. Saying... I think you need to rethink this argument. I will get on to the quality of the film in a second. I'll get on to that. I'm saying that the tone of the film is very different from the majority of films out there. I'm not saying that it necessarily works as a film. But I'm saying that this is the idea behind it. That it is not ironic, but cheesy. It's kind of earnest in an over-the-top way. It boils down to two characters, really. The Empress, who is this two-dimensional socialist, who ends the film by saying that she declares that everyone in the land is now equal. What does that mean? Just to emphasise this to people, just to explain, because I agree with you, basically that is what she wants to do. She wants to make everyone equal, yeah. and the mages think that there should be an aristocracy and, and other people. And Jeremy Irons is like a magical monopoly man yes. who, who wants to hoard all of the wealth and power for himself. Yeah, she she's awful in it. The character is like a more boring version of the, the princess or whatever from Neverending Story. It's a bad Queen Armadala. That's how I'd describe it. And then she <laughs> rides a dragon and wears some... I, God knows what's going on. Some gold chain mail. Yeah. So the other character who kind of emphasises the point that I'm making is Damodar, who is Jeremy Irons' mm. henchman. Mm -hmm. who I think is both the best and the worst thing about this film. He's one of those. Well, no, he's not the worst, actually, because the princess is the worst, or empress, whoever she is. Well, he has some of the worst moments, because a lot of what he does is whisper at people menacingly. To begin with, you get it, but then eventually it's just like, how could anyone hear him? He's like in the middle of a battle, in the middle of a fight in the streets, and he starts whispering to the soldiers who are following him. <laughs> and he only ever does this kind of slow, menacing walk that makes him look a bit like a seven-foot-tall zombie. <laughs> How does he ever catch anyone? He's not really got much charisma, unlike Jeremy Irons. I'd love it if they had Jeremy Irons from the whole way around. The one scene where he does have charisma yeah. is an interrogation scene, right? So Jeremy Irons, the mage, has cursed Damodar. He's put a sneaky eel monster inside his head, and it's causing him immeasurable pain. But mm. this is what drives him to turn against the Empress and against the Empire, which he's served all of his life. 
So he is this torn and conflicted character. The problem is that this film doesn't have the time it needs to tell its story. The problem is he can't That's act. Basically, at the time or the budget. He, he can't, he's, well, not he a good, can he's not a good enough actor. And also, what I didn't understand, and I'd love, because you've played D&D, so you can explain this to me. What is the thing with the blue <laughs> lipstick? Why is he wearing I blue lipstick? It just, it, it, just looked, it just looked cool. No, it, no, it doesn't. It, it does not. Unless it's meant to suggest that, I don't know, maybe he's got like a low body temperature, like he's a cold man. And that's when he's got blue lips rather than red. Okay, briefly to discuss the script. So, for example, I've got a quote here, which is, I've got a new name for dumb, Ridley. (laughs) That is the level of this script. Some of the people do the best with what they've got. Richard O'Brien, to be fair, does very well with what he's given. That There is a bit when he he says, um, I never joke when mages trespass on my guild. I think all of these problems that you have with this movie can be explained by the fact that... It's rubbish. That's how it can be explained. It's the opposite. I think... No, no, I think this film has the opposite problem of Clue. Clue didn't have enough story for its runtime. This film has too much story for its runtime. One of the mistakes that I made when I was running a D&D game was trying to squash an entire campaign, which is meant to last weeks, into one single day, which just leads to skipping over bits that you think were important because people are obviously getting tired and bored and just you know, a bit of burnout. And I think that's what happened with this film. Emotionally, this film is like up one second, down the next. And like, it just, it oscillates far too quickly. Mm. And I think part of that is due to the fact that it feels like it was meant to be a three-hour epic, like the Lord of the Rings films were, but squashed down to a hundred minutes. And there are problems there. So like, one of the, uh, early on in the film, they find a magic map that's going to lead them to (laughs) the Eye of the Dragon. (laughs) Yeah. Right, and they go to a tavern and they do some magic and two of the characters end up inside the map. <laughs> they later on reappear with, with a story about this whole adventure that they just had. Yeah. But we don't get to see that adventure. Nope. That, that is obviously at least one scene that's missing, if not like 20, 30 minutes worth of film. Yeah. Because that's where like these two characters are meant to have like, fallen for each other. And like yeah. we suddenly understand why the main character is on this quest at all. But we don't get to see it. We're just told about it later on. To some extent, I agree with you because I, I can see that. But at the same time, what that leaves us with is is some really terrible writing and some really terrible performances. And that's not due to the, the film being the wrong length. That's due to the fact that it's not directed properly or put together properly. It, it's badly done. I would love to... I can see it's got a lot of heart in it. It's got a big heart. <laughs> But but it's not really beating very well. And that's the problem with it. That's how I describe no, yeah. this film. If this movie was a baby, it would be an unhealthy baby. But, you know, I think, like, this is the problem with adapting board games. Is that, you know, like D&D, you know, it's meant to be this thing about, like, a grand adventures taking place around a small table. And it's all taking place in, like, four or five people's collective imagination. And while films like E.T. and shows like Stranger Things can represent that by having people play D&D and games like them, to do like a direct adaptation, it, it's it's a lot less easy. <laughs> it, it, it's messy, as, as we've seen in this film. I mean, top marks for enthusiasm, zero marks for everything else. That's how I'd, I'd regardless, <laughs> no matter what you say, <laughs> are you going to be able to change my mind on this? I would much rather watch Clue than I would do Dungeons and Dragons. But neither film is that good, really, is it? They're fine as adaptations, but the problem of adapting a game is that You've got the problem of adapting a novel where people have come into it with expectations already in terms of what the plot's going to look like, what the characters are going to be like, how they're going to relate to each other. But then you've got the added problem of the fact that you don't even have characters in the game. You've got icons, you've got names, maybe a physical description and a sense of what they look like. But that's not enough to create a character for a story because characters have, they have desires Mm. and they have problems and they have 
they have something which drives them forward. And you don't need that in a board game because you've got the players wanting to play. And that fills in that gap. You know, part of what makes a game is the fact that anybody can win. And the game makes just as much sense no matter who that is. That's not the case with the story. And so you've kind of got to mash these two things together, but they don't really make sense. So basically, having looked at these films from our, our request from our dear listener, Peter Holdsworth, we've decided they don't work and they shouldn't make any more of them. <laughs> Is that what we've come to the conclusion I'm not, of? I'm not saying they shouldn't make any more of them. I'm just saying they're never going to be the best thing that you watch that year that you've seen it in. Basically, you're it's never going to be the best thing on. But you... if you if you like the underlying property, then by all means. Like, I love Dungeons and Dragons, and I think that's a big part of why I like the D&D film. I am not such a big fan of the game Pluto, and maybe that's affected uh, my, my enjoyment of the film. What we're saying is there's always going to be more magic in a board game than there is in a film about a board game. Is that the best cheesy ending line I can come up with? Probably. Yeah. <laughs> On the subject of happy endings and cheeriness, next week we're going to be looking at films about zombies. Listeners who've been listening from the very start will know I have regularly tried to derail the entire podcast by saying, why not insert some zombies? I'm surprised you didn't do it this week. No, I did very well. Reese has finally given in to my demands this season by not only allowing us to do Train to Busan in the train episode, which by all means do go and check out if you want because it is an excellent episode. Episode, but we're also going to be looking at two other zombie films next week. Dawn of the Dead, the original one, the one set in the shopping mall, which is one of my favourite films of all time and one of the most horrifying films I've ever seen. And also The Cured, which we'll be talking more about what that is next week. If you do want to get in touch or you've particularly liked an episode, please, please, by all means, do get in touch with us. You can get in touch via Twitter, at History Reynolds or at Reese DS. Um, or you can get in touch with us via Instagram, via get in touch with Reese that way. Or just drop us a line. We, we really, really like to hear from you. And let us know if there's any, things, any other films that you think we should be discussing or anything else that you want to talk about. And if you enjoyed this episode, why not recommend us to a friend? So, uh, Reese, well, I think that brings us to the end of our episode. I'm going to uh, go and play a board game now, rather than watch any more board game films <laughs> for a while. And I'm going to go and engorge my brain in anticipation of the next episode. I <laughs> <laughs> uh, hope you've enjoyed it, and uh, keep safe, and we'll look forward to doing the next episode. Bye. We'll see you then. Bye.